If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 5. If you don't usually bring your Bible to church, we do want to encourage you to do that. And there's some of us like to use Bibles on our smartphones and tablets. And that's fine. It's still a Bible. So uh, you can do that. But I know for me, I don't mind confessing to you, I can't be on my phone or my tablet without ending up on like Twitter or Kindle app or you know, surfing the internet or answering a text message somebody sends me, uh, because our phones are just like a black hole of distraction, right? <laughs> like they are kind of created for both uh, production and distraction. And uh, a lot of times my production gets interrupted by the distraction the phone can bring. I think that particularly those of us who are millennials and younger, uh, we're prone to that sort of thing. So I would challenge you, bring your re- real physical Bible to church. I think you'll find that to be a rewarding uh, thing, but if you keep on bringing that tablet, uh, I w- will assume that you don't have those distraction problems, and uh, praise God for that. No judgment. From the very beginning of life, you have been taught that there is good fear and there is bad fear. Your parents told you not to touch the, the hot stove, right? They wanted us to fear that. They wanted us to fear the pain that could come from it, the, the uh, the consequences that could come from touching a hot stove. So they would say, don't touch it. They wanted us to fear being hit by cars. So they would say, look both ways before you uh, cross the street. They wanted us to fear a life where we would be uneducated. So they would tell us, apply yourself at school. Apply yourself in your education. And these were good fears. They taught us these fears to keep us from destroying ourselves with a lack of awareness or a lack of a work ethic. But there are also bad fears. Our parents urged us not to fear the boogeyman who lives under our bed because they knew it was a waste of our time. He's not real. They urged us, don't fear what other people will think of you. You'll end up living for their approval. Maybe your parents taught you not to fear the things you cannot control because your parents knew worrying will not help my child. And so you can see not all fear is the same. Fear can save your life or fear can destroy your life. Fear can protect you from unnecessary trouble or fear can add to your troubles. Fear can give you the strongest of convictions and the strongest of of resolve. Or fear can cause you to melt and to compromise. And we see two types of fear in the Bible this morning. We see the fear of God, and we see the fear of man. They are on full display for us in Acts 5, 1-11. This passage does not come about in a vacuum. No Bible verse does. There's no section of your Bible that, that comes about in a vacuum. There's always context, and context is important. And the context of what we're going to see in Acts 5, 1-11 with Ananias and Sapphira is the unity of the local church, particularly the generosity of this man Barnabas. So if you'll remember two weeks ago, I read this uh, section of the scripture, Acts 4, 32-37, and it's describing the way that the early church is. They've just been persecuted, and now off of the back of really the, the, the first real persecution that they received from the religious authority, just as Jesus said they would receive it, right off the back of that persecution, we see that they are unified and that they love the Lord and that they love one another. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Up until now, the only conflict for the church has been from the outside. It's been external. Internally, we have seen nothing in Acts except beauty and grace and unity in the church. Gospel advance. But that is about to change. 
Because here in the midst of this wonderful unity, in the midst of this church health, there is an attack from within. There is a spiritual assault from within aimed at snuffing out this gospel light that is shining. And so Acts 5 verse 1 says, But a man, so he's different than Barnabas. This is a different sort of man. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Father God, it is so easy for us to fear the wrong things. There's a lot to fear in this world, seemingly. And Lord, when we walk outside, we, we see things that can harm us. When we turn on the news, we see things that can harm us. When we go to the doctor, they tell us of things that can harm us. Tangible things you can reach out and touch. But Lord, the world is going about their business, and I guess because they can't see you, they don't fear you. And what a dangerous, dangerous thing that is to fear created things and to not fear the creator. Lord, teach us through your word to not be like that, to to not fear created things and then to have no reverence for you. Or, or to fear created things and have no reverence for you. Teach us, Lord, to, to not be this way through your word this morning. And teach us, God, that our faith and our religion, if it's real, if it's the sort of faith that saves, then it can't just be out in front. It's got to be all the time when we're in front of people, but also, Lord, when we're just in front of you. Our hearts are open to you this morning. And if any hearts are not, Lord, I pray that you would open them up by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we start to make statements about what we can learn from the passage, let's just have a clear understanding of what exactly Ananias and Sapphira have done. What what they have tried to pull off. What is this little scheme they have? Well, they sell a field and they say that they're bringing all the money to Peter's feet, to the apostles' feet. They give it. They say, this is it. This is all the money we made from selling this field. So what they want is to appear as being more pious than they actually are. They want everybody to think that they're giving everything that was made when in truth they're only giving a portion. And what's really baffling to Peter is that this action was not required of them. That's the point he's making to Ananias in verses 3 and 4. Nobody said you had to bring all of the money from this real estate transaction and give it to the church. Nobody told you you even had to sell the field. You could have sold it and kept all the money for yourself. You could have sold it and brought a portion of the money. You could have just kept the field and not sold it. It was your business. The church had made no rule requiring the proceeds of the selling of land to be dispersed to the congregation. The giving that we see in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, is not done under gunpoint. It is done freely, cheerfully, sacrificially. 
It is the choice of these believers to give because they love the Lord Jesus, they believe the gospel, and Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, therefore they're saying these things that we own, they're not really our things. We'll hold everything open-handed and we will do it cheerfully and we will do it willingly and sacrificially for the sake of meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters and loving them the way Jesus told us to love them. They're not doing it because the church is saying, you must do this if you want to be a part of this. So why'd they do it? Well, you see in verse 3 that Satan filled Ananias' heart. It's the same old enemy, the same old slug from the garden, the same way he slithered into God's glorious creation and deceived Adam and Eve into exalting themselves and disobeying God. Satan has slithered into God's glorious church. And he has convinced Ananias and he has convinced Sapphira to do the same. In the case of Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree because they want to be like God, knowing good and evil. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they don't tell this lie because they want to be like God, but because they want to be like Barnabas. Their, their, their aim isn't even as high as Adam and Eve's aim was. They want to be like Barnabas. They want the accolades that Barnabas has received. They want a new name like Barnabas got from the apostles to match his abundant generosity. Barnabas gave in the way that I was just talking about. He wanted to exalt Christ. He wanted to meet the needs of brothers and sisters. So he brings all the money from selling a field. He lays all of it at the apostles' feet. The apostles say, you are a son of encouragement. And so Ananias and Sapphira say, let's do the same thing. Maybe they'll call us son and daughter of encouragement. Maybe we'll get a special name. We'll get special recognition. Only, we don't want to give all the money. So we'll tell them we're giving all the money but we'll actually hold some of it back. We get the approval of man. We get the applause of man, but we still get to keep the money. In other words, they want to be just pious enough to be lauded by the church community, but not pious enough to give sacrificially toward God. Just religious enough to lay a hand on heaven, but also resolved to keep a hand on the world. They want to appear holy. They don't actually care about being holy. So they come up with this premeditated plan to try and deceive the apostles and the whole church. And as Peter says in verse 4, ultimately God. They're lying to God first and foremost. You see that it's premeditated in verse 2. It's done with his wife's knowledge, so it's a constructed plan. And then in verse 9, Peter, when he speaks to Sapphira, says, how is it that you agreed together? So again, this is a a plan that they cooked up together to deceive the church and deceive the apostles and ultimately deceive the Lord. That's who the lie is against first and foremost. It's against the Lord. They have lied to the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 3. If a Jehovah's Witness ever comes and knocks on your door, they're going to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not a person, that the Holy Spirit is a force. We believe that... That God is a wonderful, blessed, triune God, meaning that he is one God in three persons, three persons in one God. He is one God, he is the Father, he is the Son, and he is the Holy Spirit, three separate persons in the Godhead. You do not lie to a force, okay? That's Star Wars stuff, and even in Star Wars, Pastor Ben will tell me later if this is right or not, but even in Star Wars, I don't think you lie to the force, right? You don't lie to a force, you lie to people. You test people. They test the Spirit in verse 9. They have lied to God in verse 4. And God is exposing the lie for what it is. And so here's our first teaching point this morning. Number one, God sees through our public devotion and private hypocrisy. When we want to offer up a life that is publicly devoted and privately, it's hypocritical. It does not represent what we offer up publicly. God sees through that. My favorite show on TV is On Patrol Live. It's like the only thing I watch now. I just got so tired of like all the subversive messages and everything on TV. I was like, I'm just going to watch police. And that's what I do. I just watch these police officers do their job on On Patrol Live. For a few hours, they ride along with police officers and you just watch them. You get to see these men and women and and the excellence in which they execute 
their occupation uh, with on a regular basis. It's unbelievable. They go from social worker to doing some sort of military-style raid on a house to just doing a, a traffic stop to help getting a kitten out of a tree all in one night. But here's what I've learned really watching the show. You don't ever, ever, ever run from the police. They got dogs and helicopters. They got cars. They will get you on foot. They will catch you. If they don't catch you when they catch you, they'll catch you a few days later. Whatever hiding spot you think you have, you don't have it. They'll find you. Now, if it is this way with fallen men and women with badges and criminal-sniffing dogs... How much more is it so with the God of the universe who sees everything? You might fool your, your fellow church members. You might fool your own family. And you might even fool yourself. People do that. People deceive themselves. But you will never, ever fool God. He's the omniscient creator and governor. He sees everything, and that doesn't just mean in the here and now. The Bible presents to us a God who knows the end from the beginning. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. There is nothing, past, present, or future, that God does not know. His understanding is beyond anybody's ability to measure it. Uh, He is infinite. And by the way, he completely knows himself. Just think about that for a second. He is infinite. He completely knows himself. Therefore, he has infinite knowledge. Before we even start talking about his knowledge of creation, we really, really often shrink him down, don't we? And we say, well, he's got a brain like us, and he thinks like us, and he sees like us, and he knows like us. No, 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 no. He is so much bigger, he is so much more massive than, than, than we think. we got to get back down into the scriptures and look, and what you will see there is a God who knows himself completely and perfectly. He knows everything that exists, he knows everything that's ever been made, everything that ever will be made, and he knows it all in an instant, past, present, and future, and he's always known it. Whatever plan you come up with to try and fool everyone, it will not fool him. And that includes any plan to present a devotion in public that is inconsistent with a devotion in private. What we have seen in Ananias and Sapphira in this passage is really a religiosity that is not after the heart of Christ. It's after the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. The people that Christ verbally excoriated for having a public devotion to God that did not line up with their private devotion. The scribes, those who copied the law, the experts in the law, they would muster up just enough religion to maintain their power and their position. And they had no real love for God. Jesus, in the hearing of all the people, he's just speaking to his disciples, but he says this in Luke 20 in front of everybody. Beware of the scribes. By the way, scribes absolutely were there listening as he says this. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Scribes, religious men in religious dress with religious speech who have no religion. How do you know they have no religion? Because the Spirit of the living God spoke through James and told us that the religion that God considers to be pure and faultless is that which looks after the orphan and the widow. And here these men ate up the estates left to widows by their husbands and sons who had gone on before them, proving they had no true devotion to the Lord. They had no religion. They had an ostentatious show, but privately they did not love him. He is a tool to get ahead in this world. That is how they use the Lord. The Lord. They would tithe off their spice rack. The Pharisees would. Good buddies with the scribes. In order to keep the letter of the law. But they don't actually love the Lord either. 
And they don't actually execute justice for the sake of their neighbor, and they have no real devotion to God in their hearts. And so in Luke eleven forty two, he speaks right to them. Jesus says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You want to tithe off your spice rack? That's awesome. But you got to love God, and you got to love your neighbor as you do it, or your tithing off the spice rack means nothing. When you publicly say one thing is the driving passion of your life. It's all you're living for. It's what you represent. And privately, you live in the opposite manner. That is what we call hypocrisy. It is not religion gained or, or, uh, directed at, at gaining the approval of God. It is religion that is aimed at gaining the approval of man. It's not concerned with lifting up and exalting the name of God. It is all about lifting up and exalting one's own ego and name. And Jesus said, beware the sort of religious practice that has this as its goal. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You want to go do a bunch of good stuff and have people slap you on the back and applaud you and say, man, you're so religious, you're so awesome, you're so spiritual, you're the best. If that's what all this is about for you, congratulations, you have your reward when those people congratulate you and applaud you and slap you on the back. That is your reward. You have no reward in heaven. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples there. Matthew 6, 2, very next verse. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The, the hypocrites give to the needy. They need a trumpet to sound so people will turn and go, oh, hey, somebody gave over here. Let, let's, let's clap. Let's applaud them. And Jesus says, congratulations, there's your reward. What would lead a person to act in this way? What would lead a people like Ananias and Sapphira to, to chase this car? Why would anybody pursue this sort of religion? Because they want the applause. It's all about the immediate satisfaction of having people laud them for their public devotion. See, here's the thing about private devotion. It's only got one audience. And that's God. Now those who know him know when you're privately devoted with him, when you get with him in the prayer closet, right? When you read the word, when you pray, when you confess sin, when you praise him, when you do these things, you know that there is an immediate payoff. You know that there's joy. You know that there is comfort. You know that you get up and you feel edified and you feel filled up. But that's because you know the Lord. You've tasted of the goodness. Those who have not tasted the goodness and they're trying to fake it, they're not interested in that. There is no immediate payoff. They have no relationship with, with the Lord, so they see no benefit to any sort of peace or joy that would come through private prayer and worship and study. I don't need to do that stuff when I'm alone. I don't get anything out of that because I don't really care about the one that I'm interacting with there. Religion is just something I do in front of other people to get their applause and their approval, it is a tool to my name, my ego, being built up. So Ananias and Sapphira and the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't actually care about whether or not God is honored in their hearts privately. They just want to be honored in the hearts of others for what they do publicly. And what this exposes is a stone-cold fear of man. When you spend all your time trying to please everybody around you, you fear man. You need their approval. You fear what it would be like to not have it. You'll do anything to please them and to get it. That is the fear of man. When you spend all your time thinking about what other people think of you, it is the fear of man. When you can't stand the idea that others would have thoughts and feelings about you that you cannot control, despite your best efforts, to control them. It's the fear of man. And when you march around like a religious peacock, faking Christianity in order to garner the praise of church people, 
stealing the glory that belongs to God. You fear man. You fear man so much you have no problem trying to lay a hand on the praise that belongs to God alone. You will steal from God if it means going to bed at night and knowing you are applauded in this world. And that is what we see in Ananias and Sapphira in this passage. And God looks right through it and he exposes it for what it is. Church, understand, this is the way it's going to be with all things. All things will be exposed in the end. All things will be laid bare in the end. In Revelation 20, verse 12, John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. That's God's judgment throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You might find a way to deceive everybody now. You might not have immediate consequences for your sin and you think, I'm getting one past God today. But the truth is, is that your life will be exposed in full in the end. If you are living publicly devoted to the Lord, but privately you pretty much live like an atheist, God's going to expose that. If you are living publicly a devoted life to the Lord, but privately you love and you worship something else and you rarely even think about God, God will expose that. And for every Ananias and Sapphira who are publicly living one way in order to gain approval from others and privately they are lying to God in the end, if not before, God will expose it. And so repent now. Let today be a day of brief sorrow. And I say brief because you come to grips with your sin and that is real sorrow before God and you confess it, but it's a brief because in confessing the shame of, oh Lord, yes, I'm exposed. I've been living this publicly devoted life and this privately hypocritical life. While there's that brief shame and sorrow in that, there is the joy of then repenting, being forgiven by him, and then being given his Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. And then you start to actually walk with him and live a life that is both publicly and privately devoted. Your brief sorrow will give way to eternal joy and eternal life. And listen, people may or may not like you, but you will have approval with God. That is far, far, far better than continuing on in hypocrisy. You might get away with it. You might find yourself experiencing the brief happiness of fooling everybody in the here and now. But eternal sorrow will come when God opens his books. And the fear of man will not pay. And so turn to him now. You can see the fear of man doesn't pay in what happens to Ananias and to his wife. In the case of Ananias, Peter confronts his sin and he falls down dead just like that. He breathes his last and then the strong young backs in the congregation come in and they wrap him up and they take him outside and they bury him in the ground. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She has no idea that her husband is not alive anymore. Peter gives her the opportunity to be honest. She is not. She holds to the lie. And Peter rebukes her, tells her, your husband is dead. The men who buried him, they're at the door. And you're next. And sure enough, in verse 10, she dies and she breathes her last. And the church business meeting turns into a funeral. And they bury her right next to Ananias. Some of us may struggle with what God has done here. You might say, surely this is too harsh. Should have gotten a slap on the wrist here. Maybe a warning not to do it again. Surely a God of patience would be slower to wrath. I think, though, that if you feel that way, it is probably, uh, probably because... You have bypassed God's holiness, and you want to understand his wrath, but, but you've gone past his holiness to get there. You've gone straight to the wrath. I want to understand his anger. But if you bypass his holiness, you won't understand his anger rightly. You'll look at his anger, and you'll judge it by your anger. You'll say, well, when I get angry, I'm like this. So when God is angry, he should be like this. Well, God's not like you. He's not a human being. We can't bypass the holiness of God, the otherness of God, 
and then try to understand his attributes. It won't make sense. When we say things like, God should not have punished in this way, or we say things like, God should have handled this differently, we're showing we have a a weak view of his holiness. We have begun to make a God in our own image. When Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah 6, which, by the way, if you have our our worship guide this morning on the inside, uh, our, our our order of worship every single week comes from Isaiah chapter 6. So we just pull it from the scriptures. And in Isaiah 6, as Isaiah sees the, the glory of the Lord, he is sure that he's not dealing with the holiness of a God made up by a human mind. He is encountering the one true God who is the first and the greatest of all beings. He is coming into contact with the God who is spirit, who is infinite, who is unchanging, who is powerful, and who displays his perfection in loving kindness and compassion. And when Isaiah sees him, he hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the song being sung by the angels that are proclaiming the glory of God. Not that the God that Isaiah is coming into contact with is merely holy, not even just holy, holy, but as R.C. Sproul has famously pointed out, he is holy, 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 emphasized to the third degree, the highest level of emphasis in Hebrew writing. It's the only attribute of God to receive this treatment in the scriptures. We must understand it. The holiness of God refers to his separateness, his transcendence. I just talked about his mind-blowing knowledge that, that it's hard for you and I to even fathom. And, and, and that sort of knowledge is what makes God transcendent, above and beyond us. He made the earth out of nothing. We can't do that. He has no sin. We can't claim that. He's purely good. We know that's, that's not our record. He hates all evil by his very nature. By my nature, I loved evil from birth. And he's never done a single thing wrong, which certainly none of us can say that of. Can't say that of ourselves. Every move that he makes is right by definition because he is purely upright. He's incapable of even making mistakes. All that makes God so much different than you. You cannot create out of nothing. You have sin. You are not purely good. You don't hate evil as much as you should. When we see him as holy, when we understand his purity, his uprightness, we become aware we are not those things. We become painfully aware of our sin, and like Isaiah, we will cry out. Isaiah 6 verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah came into contact with the glory of God, he became very, very sure that he is sinful and that the Lord is holy. So go back to that first church, the mother church, the local church in Jerusalem with Peter and the boys confronting sin and God taking people out of this world, we should not object that Ananias and Sapphira die in this way and are judged in this way. The Holy One has acted in righteousness. Sinners have tested Him by lying to Him and others. Who are we to question his righteous judgment? Who are we to turn our mouths against him with our ideas of human fairness and say, you're not fair? Job had a conversation with God that starts in Job 38, and God is asking Job questions, just just making sure that Job understands his place in the created order, that he is man and that God is God. And so he asked Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? This is God saying to Job, hey Job, were you there 
in the beginning, in the beginning, God. Were you there? Do you have understanding of that day? Did you set the boundaries of the oceans? Are you the one that causes the sun to rise every day? Well, if the answer is no, the answer is right. And it is a sign that you are a part of fallen creation and you are not the holy creator. God alone is the holy creator. He stands alone as the holy one. He deserves worship. He deserves praise. And you should not question his judgment in this world. You are sinful man. He is holy God. So our second teaching point, God is filled with holy love and holy justice. I think one reason people recoil at the passage is because they feel like it's too wrathful and they think it feels too Old Testament. And what I want to tell you is the God of the old is the God of the new. And that's a good thing that God is unchanging. It would be very, very hard to live in this world that rapidly changes and we feel like the, 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 the sand is just kind of shifting under our feet all the time, it would be very hard to live in this world that way if we also had no surety that God did not change. But God does not change. I don't think the issue with God's holiness and His wrath has anything to do with Him. I think it every, has everything to do with a lack of biblical understanding on our part. See, the Bible is gushing with these statements about God's love in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not a God of wrath in the old and a God of love in the new. It's a God of love in the old and a God of love in the new. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's gushing language. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. It never ends. It's gushing language. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So I got Old Testament Psalms saying that God's love lasts forever and it overflows. And I got New Testament verses telling me God so much loves this world he gives his only son to die for it so that people would not perish but have eternal life and that God is love. God of love, Old Testament, God of love, New Testament. And yet right alongside those passages are instances in which this perfect God of love shows his perfect wrath. An Old Testament instance, very similar to the scene in Acts 5, can be found in the sin of Achan after the defeat of Jericho. Israel's had this big military battle, they're victorious, It's really the Lord that won it for them, right? After Jericho's walls come tumbling down and they're supposed to devote all the spoils of Jericho to destruction. Because that shows the clearing out of the promised land is not about gold, it's about God. So they got to destroy all of the spoils. There's one man named Achan who disobeys. And in the next battle, Israel is going up against Ai. And they lose to Ai, which is a shock because if we're talking about it in like sports terms, AI is University of Georgia, uni- or, uh, or Jericho is University of Georgia, University of Alabama, big SEC powerhouse. AI is a Mac school. It's Bowling Green. All right, no offense to Bowling Green grads, but it's Bowling Green. Eastern Michigan. So Joshua tears his clothes. He's like, God, why would you have us go into the promised land and get this victory against Jericho just to lose to, to little AI? I mean, come on. Like, what? I know you care about your name. So, so why did this happen? And the Lord reveals to Joshua that there are devoted things in the camp that should have been destroyed. And Joshua confronts Israel, and he confronts Achan, and Achan confesses to what he did. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Well, after this, Joshua takes those devoted things and he burns them up. But that's not all that he burns. 
because he throws Achan and his entire family into the fire of judgment and says, the Lord brings on you trouble today. Now you hear that and you go, that's what I'm talking about. That's Old Testament though. That's the God of wrath. Well, I can take you to the New Testament and show you God taking people off of this earth, not just with Ananias and Sapphira. We go to 1 Corinthians 11. He's taking people off this earth because they're careless at the communion table. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Does that sound like a God of glitter and sprinkles and and pillows and candy and fun all the time? Or do we have the same God of perfect love and perfect wrath that brought judgment on Achan in the Old Testament, bringing judgment on Ananias and Sapphira and on those who are careless at the Lord's Supper table in the New Testament? It's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, immutable, unchanging. He's holy and he's loving. He's merciful, but he's also judging, and he is wrathful. He is tender, and he is also severe. And in all these things, he is perfect, and he is praiseworthy. God has done nothing wrong in these verses. Ananias and Sapphira have. It's the blame shifter in us. It's, it's old Adam in us who says, the woman you gave me. It's that blame-shifting, warped morality in us, that fallen sense of fairness in us that would leave us trying to lay any fault at the feet of God for what has occurred in Acts 5. The real truth of the scene is God is holy and he does not lie. Human beings are depraved and they lie by nature. And God will not have his first church the mother church of all the churches that are to come, become a mockery filled with the same empty pharisaical ethics that had done so much damage to the synagogue religion. He wasn't going to have it. And finally, what was the result of God's judgment? What's the effect on the rest of the church? Well, Luke tells us, Acts 5, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. After Sapphira dies, the same thing happens, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And so our final teaching point this morning, God wants reverence and sincerity from his church. God wants reverence and sincerity from his church. And listen, true reverence will always be sincere. If you have reverence that's not sincere, it's not real reverence. You can have the most elaborate, over-the-top worship service. We could be like, man, we're going to have candles, we're getting the incense out, robes, vaulted ceilings, majestic choirs. It's all just a show if it's not heartfelt. And then we'd be back to where we began. Religion for the sake of appearance and the approval of man and not God. Ananias and Sapphira attempted this. They aimed for the appearance of true religion, but their fear was not in the right place. They feared man and not God. Their devotion to God only existed in so much as it could earn them favor with man. God did not want that sort of hypocrisy taking root in the first local church in the era of the New Testament. And so he uprooted it. And his uprooting of these two liars, it shakes up the church. You can see the church's fear is right where it should be in verses 5 and 11. They're revering the God who gives and the God who takes away, the God who blesses and the God who judges. They are altered by what has occurred. It's not that they didn't fear God before. We can't say that of them. We've seen them relying on the scriptures. We've seen them praying. We've seen them giving and being generous and loving the gospel. But instead, what's happening is God is increasing reverence in the church. As he is purifying the church, and as he is removing the sin that Ananias and Sapphira brought into the church, he is increasing the sincerity and the reverence in the church. He is using the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira as an impetus for a culture of reverence to take shape in the early church. He wants his church to be worshipers, and he is sanctifying them to that end. 
that more and more true reverence would come out of their lives toward his throne. And this is where wisdom starts. You want to be wise? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 14.1 is the fool who says this in his heart that there is no God. That's a moral foolishness that Psalm 14 verse 1 is talking about. It is a morally foolish decision to say there is no God and to live without fear of him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of man is not the beginning of knowledge. And that is so practical. When we try to fix the problem we started with today, that's so practical. What's the issue for Ananias and Sapphira? They fear man and not God. They're sinning in order to acquire man's approval. Well, this is so practical because if they had just feared God first and foremost, then they would have sold their field and they would have given whatever he led them to give and they would have moved on and they would not have died. Do you see how the fear of the Lord literally would have saved their physical lives? Do you see how fearing God truly is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? But to not fear him is the opposite. To not fear God, it is spiritual suicide. It is to shake your fists at the Almighty and to say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, Ananias and Sapphira found out. I'm going to ask the band to return, lead us in a final song, and as they are coming back up, are you Barnabas or are you Ananias and Sapphira this morning? And what I mean by that is, are you truly a son of encouragement or you do you just subscribe to enough gospel to look like one? Are you privately devoted to God? Or is it just public? The Lord Jesus tells us that he loves us and he wants us to come to him and to find out that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Walking on the narrow road with Christ is still work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You don't work for your salvation, right? If you come into the yoke with him, you come into the yoke with him by faith, and that is a gift of God, but then you spend your life submitting to his yoke. The good news is, is it's an easy yoke. It's a light yoke in the sense that as we do the hard work of serving him in this world, he forgives us of sin and heals our, our diseases, and he's tender to us and comforting us from his word and answering our prayers. It's, a, it's an easy and a light yoke. And if that's the case, why are some of you working so hard without him? You work so hard to sound like a Christian and dress like a Christian and impress the other Christians, but behind the scenes, you don't pray and you don't read and you don't fast and you, you don't proclaim. You're working so hard to be religious, but you're getting none of the profits with God. Turn from this. Turn from a brand of religion where you're concerned with the fear of man, where you're just trying to put on a show. I don't know who you're putting it on for. I don't know if it's for your, your husband or for your wife or for your mom or your dad or you're, you're, you're putting it on for the other church members. I don't know who it's for, but turn from it. Commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in private devotion. Now, I don't want to be ambiguous about it this morning. Here's my specific challenge for you. If you fear God this morning and you say, well, how do I know if I fear him? Remember, you're publicly devoted, but privately you're not. I want to challenge you this morning for three weeks to make a commitment to your God. Crucify this public show and throw logs on the private fire. Get up earlier than you usually do. You're going to have to change something. You have to snap yourself out of this sleepwalking that you've been in where you're going through the world acting like you don't need to revere the living God of the universe. You've got to wake up. So literally wake up. Get up earlier. Get your Bible out. Tomorrow morning, start at John 1. There's 21 chapters of John. Read one a day. And every day when you get on reading the scripture, pray to God. Tell him who he is and worship him. Confess your sin to him. Thank him for what he has given you in Jesus Christ and ask help for yourself and others. 
21 days. You still don't fear God after that? Come back and talk to me. We got bigger issues going on we got to talk about. I'm serious. Stop with the show. God is not impressed. And the people around you probably aren't as impressed as you think they are either, if we're being honest. Three weeks. Get up early. Give 30 minutes to God that you haven't been given to him. See what happens. Because here's what we know of people like Barnabas. If you look around in this church and you see sons of encouragement and you want to be like them, they are the way they are because they have found the key to wisdom. They fear God in private. They found the good fear. Not the fear of man we must be delivered from. Not the fear of finite people who are also going to die and be judged like you. No, the fear of God. They have found the fear of a servant to a good and kind master. The fear of a child to a sweet and tender father. The fear of a worshiper before the great and holy God. This is the fear God wants for you, and it is the fear you must have. Will you meet with him tomorrow morning? Sincerely and reverently, will you come before him? He will be there because he is unchanging, and he longs for his children to read his word, to pray to him, to sing to him, to confess their sin to him, and to be in relationship with him. Show up and fear him. Father God, thank you that you were so merciful to us, Lord. This week, more than anything, as I read Acts 5, I just kept thinking about all the times that you probably could have just taken me out the way you did Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, you know how I as a leader and as a man have struggled with the fear of man. Oh, Lord, what a foul stench it has been in my heart all these years. God, the only remedy is to fear you. There is no other remedy. And I pray that as a church, we would crucify all the other fears, Lord, and that we would fear you first and foremost. And that would inform everything else. It is where knowledge begins. Don't let us be fools. The Pharisees were fools because they thought they could fool you. Don't let us be fools. Don't let us try to pull an Ananias and Sapphira, publicly devoted, privately hypocritical, Lord. I pray that we would be privately devoted and publicly just on fire and that it would be real. Lord, I don't know who this was for today. I know it was for me. I don't know who else it was for, but Lord, if somebody needs 21 days in John, 21 days with you, they got to get serious about this. They got to they got to crucify the public show. It's it's time to reignite the private devotion. You got to get serious about hitting reset on their faith this morning, Lord. Going back to square one, back to basics with you. I pray that they would do it, Lord. Because if we could go our whole lives being only publicly devoted, what would that even say about our hearts? And where we stand with you. I pray we wouldn't have to answer that question, Lord. That we would repent and that we would give ourselves to you and that we would fear you and you alone. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.